0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish.
1: And I'm Clinton Crude. We're the co-editors of Film Comment.
0: After a can less 2020, we were glad to welcome back Cinema's grandest event this year. We followed the festival's stellar lineup with the help of an on-the-cross set crew of Film Comment contributors. We hope you've enjoyed their thoughtful dispatches and interviews.
1: For today's podcast, part two of an epic two-parter, we invited film comment contributing editor Jonathan Romney and critic and programmer Miriam Bale to talk about some of the festival's biggest films.
0: We dug into Memoria, Annette, Drive My Car, The Souvenir, part two, Bergman Island, Vortex, and many more. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Welcome back to the Film Comment Podcast, our special CAN correspondents, Miriam Bale and Jonathan Romney have joined us once again to go through the films that we didn't get to in round one. And these are some of the major films, I think, of the festival. But before we get there, for those of you who didn't listen to part one, Miriam, do you want to introduce yourself briefly?
2: Sure. Um, I'm Miriam Bale, and I am a film programmer and critic. I was covering Cannes for W Magazine. And I program at the Indie Memphis Film Festival. I'm so glad to be back. Nice to see you all again.
3: And I'm Jonathan Romney, film critic based in London. And I was reviewing Incan for Screen Daily. Well, we're
1: so happy both of you could find the time to join us twice. Not yes. once, but twice.
0: <laughs> and we will drop links for your coverage during the festival in the show notes. So, you know, people who are listening should also go read. Both of them.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, the festival has all but wrapped us, and the awards have been distributed. And here we are, sifting through the wreckage. We thought we'd start with some of the major films that we didn't get to last time. And I know that Devika and I saw Apipitra Pongwira Sethakul's Memoria last week. And I know that I found it to be quite an experience and maybe one of my favorite of his films to date. Were you guys able to see that at the festival?
0: And it won the Grand Jury Prize. Am I right?
3: Yeah. I think ex-site quo, so there were two awards that were given to two films each.
0: I think the Grand Prix was tied between A Hero and Compartment Number 6. I have to say I was surprised by the hero, or, or a hero, winning that prize. And then I believe the jury prize was Memoria and...
1: And Nadav Lapid, the Ahedzni and the, yeah. Oh
0: yeah, Ahed's Knee. But we obviously saw way fewer films than you both did, you know, from just catching whatever we could, whatever the winds blew this way. But yeah, I think Memoria was probably my favorite. And then after that, maybe Annette, which both of which I think we want to talk about. But what did you guys think of Memoria and what was it like watching it there? What was the reaction like?
3: Actually, in, in the room I saw it, it, people were sort of surprisingly restless. I mean, that's the thing about uh, Apichat films is that, you know, you either settle completely into that world or you're likely to reject it. And, you know, whoever the people were who were kind of constantly slamming the door throughout the screening and checking their phones, um, I guess they, they just, you know, haven't attuned to that world yet. I have to say, it took me a while. Um, I think I saw three of his films before I really got it. And then suddenly it snapped and I was totally hooked. Uh, and the film that did that was Syndromes in a Century, which is one of my favorite films of all time. I don't know yet whether this will be one of my favourite films of his. It usually takes a couple of viewings before I know how I feel about any given film of his. But I thought this one was superb. I mean, I found it, it's, it's absolutely, you know, 100% what he does, but it's something of a departure because it's set in Colombia. It's in English and Spanish. It stars Tilda Swinton along with Jeanne Balibar, and along with Daniel Jimenez-Cacho from uh, Zama. So he's he's dealing with different languages and a different feel, but it's it's extraordinary because it's very much about sound. And it's about a woman who is woken in the middle of the night by loud bangs. And someone tweeted when this was announced, they said, you know, loud bangs in an Apichat Pong film, that's like Dylan going electric. <laughs> and he does actually, you know, play with sound in a really fascinating way. You know, if there's a jazz interlude in a recording studio there's a lot of silence as well he was measured sound and silence very beautifully and there's an extraordinary reveal which is like nothing else in his cinema
0: we cannot spoil that though because that like took my breath away and I, I think people should see that
3: once you discover where it's leading you kind of realize that actually it's sort of of a piece with with certain other things he's done in the past. But he just has this extraordinary imagination. And, of course, Tilda Swinton kind of connects with his, his world so perfectly. And I think it's one of her best roles in ages because, you know, she usually does this, you know, kind of comical woman of a thousand faces routine. But we forgot how brilliant she can be when she's not doing character, when she's just playing straight. And she's fantastic in this. And it's a film about sound and memory and time a and patience
1: and and exile and her I mean this character is experiencing sound and memory as kind of a state of alienation maybe she's a foreigner and it's uh, weighs heavy on her psyche these experiences yeah until this one plays that brilliantly I think what I liked a lot about this film was that it seemed to hold together this kind of I think, Somebody else characterized it as magical realism, which is a term I'd never, perhaps to my detriment, had not directly connected with the work of a in the past.
0: Is that somebody else? Me, Clint? Are you
3: referring to That's me somebody as else somebody is here, else?
1: Yes. Well, there's a couple. There were hand, it could have been could have been another person that we saw with too yeah
3: but it makes sense actually because perhaps that's why he went to colombia because you know it is the home of magical realism marquez. marquez in particular and
1: yeah
0: i so you know jonathan you said it took you a, a second i was just all in with that first shot when we don't see tilda swinton we just see, see a silhouette a shadow and we hear the sound the sound that kind of haunts her through the film it was so unsettling the way that scene is shot because you don't know where the sound is from. It sounds a bit like a gunshot or a bomb, you know? I mean, we have violent associations or fearful associations with the- these sounds. And I think that is something a Pichatpong actually does play with.
1: And construction. Just but it's like it starts off from that that experience that many of us have had of just like waking up and we feel that we heard that something happened in our apartment or there's right. a loud sound and we have a memory of that sound and it sticks with you. It's almost like the scene in Moby Dick when he talks about like waking up and feeling somebody else's hand in his hand in a dark room, that sort of uncanny sensation.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that that scene like immediately got under my skin. But the scene where I was genuinely, okay, I'm witnessing something so original and moving and it's really taking me to another place was this extended sequence where she's describing the sound to a sound engineer to try to get him to recreate it. And it's a very simple conceit in a way, you know, this this idea of trying to describe a sound using words, you know, trying to describe one like a sensorial experience using language, which is never going to be adequate or accurate to describe it. I felt like the heart of the movie is that scene when she is kind of grasping at the shape of the sound, right? She says it's rounder. There's It's as if it's in a well surrounded by seawater. I mean, there's these precise details that then you realize that that space between language and this kind of more immediate experience of sound and memory is kind of where the film is, you know, probing deep into. And it's not obviously about things being lost in translation, but it is because also she is in Colombia. She speaks pretty good Spanish, but not perfect. So she does have this like, Sense of again being in that in between space of almost reaching comprehension, but not quiet. And that really got me. And I felt like it was way tighter, like conceptually, than past movies by him, even though, you know, the, the more rambling movies have their own reasons for being that way. I thought this was very taut, uh, even though it had these long and patient scenes and the twist that you're talking about Jonathan that we were saying that moment again i won't spoil it but i just love that the movie unfolds in this dream state you know in this like very observational uh, dream state that demands like careful attention and then it's almost this genre turn you know it's like it's just so ultra compared to everything we've been watching so far i loved that he was able to sort of just take it in that direction without the movie falling apart.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I almost hate to say this because, you know, of course it's something that you can say about every single film you see, but it's also about cinema. It's also about making a film because when she sits down with the sound guy and describes the sound, that could be word for word what Apichat Pong was saying with, you know, talking to the sound designer and, of course, trying to describe, you know, as a filmmaker or an artist, trying to describe something, you know, indescribable and indefinable and elusive that you're trying to get your sound designer or your production designer or your...
0: I mean, the ineffable. I mean, that's kind of what like cinemas, yeah, always getting at.
1: But this film takes it to a place uh, that's literal too. I mean, there's always the ineffable behind that, behind that scene you're talking about, this climax, but it's much more literal. Then I think he's been in the past. Jonathan, that reminds me, I was thinking about that, that this is like the collaborative creative process where she's describing this thing that she experiences, that she understands or recognizes, but isn't quite sure what it is.
0: And I have to say, I was so taken with Tilda Swinton's performance too. And it actually does use the distinctiveness of her appearance and presence you know she's so pale and skinny in the movie she looks etiolated uh you know she kind of looks like she's ghostly and the movie puts that to really good use without it being a character you know without turning it into a character like you said without playing it up like a lot of her roles do just actually turning that into something very melancholy the fact that she sticks out.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that I think is important about this that I wanted to mention is also that the setting is Colombia, which is a country that has you know undergone a lot of travails in the past decades. And I think that the film talks about the that history of colonialism and just that well even deeper back into prehistorical violence intertribal violence and the way that those histories are sort of carried forward into the present and the way that those histories tend to kind of seep into the experiences of people in those countries who may not even be fully aware of them there's that one scene where she's walking down the street and suddenly there's a gunshot and you see one guy it's almost like a gag you know and i also thought that on an aside i thought this was this film was like const- see every scene contains some kind of twist or gag, and not maybe not a visual gag. I maybe mean, "gags" the wrong word,
0: but a shift. Yeah, yeah. I did want to mention before we move on that uh, Pong also has a segment in the Year of the Everlasting Storm, uh, which is this anthology film that showed at Cannes as well, with a lot of different directors doing these little pandemic-themed segments and. I saw that before I saw Memoria and now I kind of see how they fit together because his segment, I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of these close-ups of insects in a dimly lit bedroom in sort of this dark bedroom, but it's like very strong on sound. You know, the most active element in those scenes, I would say, is sound. And the credits made me realize that some of the sounds we hear are from Uh, like anti-police protests in Thailand over the last year and protests against brutality. And so that also made me connect that aspect of memoria, which feels a bit like paranoia, you know, this kind of the sound that she hears, what I was saying earlier, there is a moment, there is a scene in which it's linked to a gunshot sound. And that sound is, you know, this generates fear of violence, which obviously draws on Colombia's history in in various ways. But I think that that sort of also links to the segment he did in this film and maybe, you know, uh, something topical that's, you know, seeping into these films. And speaking of a filmmaker making a movie in a different country and language.
1: Although it was made in France, I believe most of it. We are talking about the movie called Annette. Miriam, did you get a chance to see this?
2: Yes, I did. It was an absolutely insane film. Um, and I'm so happy that this was made with Jeff Bezos' money. I think that's <laughs> wonderful. It's absolutely crazy, and it won Best Director.
1: Also, Mackenzie Bezos' money, too, right, for the time being?
2: Yeah. Miriam, it's Mackenzie Bezos' money, too, okay? Not just the money. Just a correction money.
1: for... the for the record.
2: Yeah, I thought it was great. And I thought it was, it took me a while to get into it. I really got into the film about halfway through. And at that point, it really clicked for me. And it won uh, Best Director at the awards, which can only happen in France. And like, it's sort of, I don't know, it's, uh, it's, um, so it's a film that, the that Sparks were trying to make for years and years. The pop rock duo. Yeah. I just thought Adam Driver's performance was so interesting in this. He's singing and his normal speaking voice is like such an instrument and so strange the way he like hits consonants for instance and his his vocal readings are so strange that I thought it worked so well for that to just like evolve that into song. And I, I it made me understand his performance style more. And he plays a very dark character. It's sort of a Robert De Niro in New York, New York. And also I have to say he's, there's a lot of the film where he's playing against a puppet. And I love that because he's kind of a puppet. He's kind of a Muppet kind of character. There's something, there's just like when in those scenes I just love those choices of making the baby this strange, bizarre, almost Chucky looking like puppet.
1: I have to say that, that that the baby puppet was like also incredibly accurate to the most to the movements of an actual baby that that that's about that age.
0: The puppeteering is some great craft though and I believe they had professional puppeteers do that and definitely big uncanny valley vibes with that. Also just to give a very short preview of the movie for those who may not know, it sort of charts the relationship between Adam Driver's Henry who is a comedian in LA, sort of this provocative uh, comedian who does these acts that mix singing and jokes, I guess, and aggressive physical performances. And Marion Cotillard plays an opera singer who has this very sweet, mellifluous, and also a very fragile kind of persona, both on stage and off stage. And it's their tempestuous. Relationship and how that affects their daughter, Annette, who is the puppet we've been talking about. I so agree with you, Miriam. I I really think this is one of the best uses of Adam Driver I've seen in a movie. Also, because you know how people are always like, seem to be puzzled by his appeal. You know, people think that he's sort of weird, but also really charming, attractive, but sort of seems, you know, dark and brooding. The movie uses that so well. And there's actually a scene in which he goes to a club and the song is all him singing, why why do women like me? You know, I'm weird and boorish. I wonder why they find me attractive. And it really seemed very zeitgeisty. And, you know, it seemed like Sparks, I guess, who wrote that song were really tapping into something about Adam Driver's appeal and the way he's talked about. And so I thought that it was just a very smart casting choice and i don't know he didn't win he didn't win a prize did he i mean i really thought i mean i haven't seen all the con movies but i thought it was a fantastic performance so i was quite disappointed
1: also his singing is great is it i mean great maybe not but for this kind of thing it like
2: works. See, it works i thought it was comical it's acting it's <laughs> acting it's it's just the same devika did you warm on the film i think when we talked about it last time you seemed a little bit cooler,
0: I think. So when I first saw it, I loved it. I mean, I walked out being exhilarated, and then I've sort of gone up and down. I think when we talked, I had just seen *Memoria*, and that had like become this a standard for you know great cinema coming out of Cannes for me. And well, I do think what I like about *Annette* is that it is not easy to like or dislike in a simple way. You know, it's just not doesn't seem like, to me, at least a festival film. It doesn't seem to me like it feel, fits the bill for like just an art house film. It is very different from Carax's previous works too. And there are bits and parts where, I don't know, there's something very melodramatic. There are some parallels to Carax's life, and there um, there are moments where it's parodying aspects of uh, media culture, right? I mean, there's this dream that Marion Cotillard's character has that uh, her husband has been accused by six women with uh, extremely similar stories, which is picking on these Me Too headlines. And I think, in a way, it's, it is so zeitgeisty that I kind of have been oscillating a little bit between, oh, like, this is too much of a gimmick. This was too much of a gag to, okay, this was kind of genius, how all out and maximalist it was and how it managed to just whip up everything, you know, everything from like, just how melodrama and musical melodrama works to how uh, tabloid, frenzy works to how male artistry and you know how women get caught up within like these narratives of male genius and failure work it just whips all that into this absorbing storm and I think I'm landing on feeling a lot of admiration you know for that experience and I do think there's a way in which the lyrics and I had not heard of Sparks before by the way like I had not heard their music or was not familiar with them I don't know if this is just how their music is but the lyrics are so literal, but then delivered with the in with this like sweeping, you know, romanticism and a kind of grandeur, and it creates this wryness that's so appealing, right? I mean, the main song of the movie is "We Love Each Other So Much," like that's just <laughs> the name of the song, and they just sing this "We Love Each Other So Much." It's so lame and sentimental and obvious and literal, but. It's meant to be that way, right? It's like sort of these very basic emotions that are rendered in beautiful songs and symphonies.
3: That was the problem for me. I mean, I found it, what did you say? Vague and obvious and sentimental. I mean, I I found that the whole film worked on a level of obviousness that I just couldn't handle at all. So I was really fascinated to see it because I kind of have... Uh, a sort of sceptical relationship to Carax, who so I'm fascinated by as a filmmaker, and I love the idea of Holy Motors, but whole chunks of the film I couldn't stand. One moment in Holy Motors is fantastic, is the accordion solo that just comes mm-hmm. in the middle of the film. Oh, now here's a big accordion interlude, which has got to you, and the moment that co- corresponded for me. To that, in Annette, was at the beginning, Prelude, where they go, Now May We Start. And Sparks are in the studio with Carax himself and Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. And
1: Carax's daughter.
3: Is- yeah, and they all kind of walk out into the street singing a song. And I thought, Wow, this is going to be great. And then it just lost it for me. And, you know, I mean, for me, I can see, you know, it was very bombastic. I appreciated the kind of grandiosity of some of the production you know there's a storm at sea and there's a kind of massive stadium concert but i just couldn't believe any of it beginning with the moment in fact he's indulged twice you have not one but two moments where henry played by adam driver goes on stage and does his show and the first time the audience lap it up and the second time they're outraged by it and personally i was i was surprised that either time they even turned up because you know this didn't kind of convince me or entertain me or or you know kind of confront me in any way as uh, you know he's a kind of edgy comedian who who says the unsayable
0: isn't that kind of the point though that i mean yeah. i didn't find his sets funny at all and i thought they were obnoxious but i thought it was a parody of this like uh modern genre of obnoxious edgy comedians who end up being like deeply insecure and you know the audience there they have fan bases that kind of lap it up
1: yeah Um, but is it but i actually i kind of intend to i did think that those scenes were not witty like i don't think that they were a very precise parody of that i don't know if they could have been
3: but then becomes this kind of byronic tormented soul who goes sort of racing off into the night on his bike
1: well, he's more of like a Wyndham, uh, Lewisian soul, right? The ape of God, the sort of like self-hating, yeah. mm-hmm.
3: like... But the other thing is, I mean, I've been following Sparks on and off, you know, over their 50-year-or-something career. I mean, I remember hearing their second album on the radio late at night and thinking, wow, what is it? So this must have been like 72. And then the the night they were on TV for the first time in the UK on the music show that everyone watched... This is 1974, uh, Top of the Pops, and they did this town big enough for the both of us. And the next day, everyone in my school was sucking their cheeks in and pretending to be wrong male. And the teachers were having to tell everyone to stop sucking their cheeks in and looking <laughs> sideways.
1: Luckily, nobody showed up with uh, the facial hair. That might have been a little bit more of a touchy exactly. situation.
3: But, you know, they've been very witty and very imaginative and they've... they've done lots of different and, and the trouble for me with this film is you know i didn't think the songs had their you know their i say their spark you know their their wit i mean usually the lyrics are much sharper and wittier and you know i mean they can write you know real cold porter lyrics when they want
1: i also thought that the music was not as it wasn't as catchy like well what but i don't know if it again I like, i think that this is a flawed movie that is so audacious that i even acknowledging like min- its many flaws i think that i still really admire it i think it's an achievement of some kind but uh i do think that the songs are not sparks's greatest I, and that's maybe why that first scene that is maybe the one complete song so may we start that really kind of lives up to classic sparks
2: which they appear in so maybe it- you know, I think Devika's experience of this film is, to me, the peak can film experience where you're kind of wrestling with it. You don't know if it's like, you know, um, to quote Adam Nayman, a masterpiece or a piece of shit like, you know, you're kind of and that's those are the most interesting films. Um, I do want to counter. Two things that Jonathan said. One is that Miriam has been maintaining a list. <laughs> I have a list. And the one thing is that, like, the lavish production, I wouldn't call the boat scene, for instance, a lavish production, is quite the opposite. It reminded me of something like Cabin Boy or. It's like or a rear recent-
1: projection of the storm. It's <laughs> yeah.
2: Like- or it reminded me of a recent film by Albert Burney and Kentucky Oddly, Strawberry Mansion, that has a similar kind of lo-fi surrealism and romanticism. But I also want to say Holy Motors is the best film of the last decade, maybe, at least top three. So I have to, I have to, I have to argue with you there.
0: See, but I think this film takes itself a little less seriously than Holy Motors, and I love Holy Motors too. But I think this is why this film was still a surprise, despite knowing the you know wha- you know the so-called wackiness and maximalism of Holy Motors. This film is both like obvious, but also saying, yeah, we know we're being obvious, you know. And I think that sort of nudge, nudge, wink, winkness can great. Uh, in movies, and that's maybe part of my like initial ambivalence towards it. But despite all of that, it's also so sincere. I mean, the ending portion with you know the father son portions that kind of take over
1: the last seat, the father daughter, yeah,
0: they're very moving. And so, despite all of this like wryness and tongue in cheekness and sort of satire. I just felt that the emotions were so fearlessly full and real and sincere in the style of an opera or in the style of like a musical melodrama. I just thought that line was walked well and I did feel swept away by it. So
1: Leo's correct. Doesn't do half emotions. Well, let's move on to another film that I know that you guys had different opinions on our guests It is a film we didn't get to talk about last time, obviously, but uh, Souvenir 2, the Joanna Hogg follow up to Souvenir 1. Jonathan, do you want to, what was your reaction to this film?
3: I love this film and I think it's a great sequel, but of course you don't have to have seen Souvenir 1. You know, the point is that at the beginning of this film, the heroine, Julie, her um, boyfriend uh, has died at the end of the last film. This leaves her sort of trying to explore, trying to find out what happened to him. Joanna Hogg is, I think, unique in British cinema because uh, she she speaks about a kind of experience that that perhaps used to dominate British cinema and British theatre, which was the uh, middle to upper middle class um, experience. And, and that milieu has sort of become you know, kind of taboo, and, you know, we generally kind of mistrust depictions of that world, but she speaks about it very differently, and I mean, she speaks about it with, uh, you know, particular authenticity, because that's the world she comes from, but she casts a completely different light on it, and the wonderful thing about this film is, you know, it's clearly autobiographical. It's about her filmmaking studies and you know the the first film starts with this idea that here is this basically this posh young girl trying to make a gritty realist film about working-class Sunderland in the north of England and sort of having to persuade people that she can do it and is what she wants to do but in Mm -hmm. fact um, Joanna Hogg has really sort of moved so far away from the mainstream of British social realism, you know, from from the world of Ken Loach. And in fact, her third film exhibition was, you know, the closest uh, any British filmmaker has has recently come to, the the modernism of Antonioni. So she's constantly exploring film language, which she does in this film, you know, remarkably. And there's a whole sequence at the end in which she's basically a, a fantasy in which she explores her own love of cinema and the images become quite extravagant and rich, but it's also very simple in a way. There are there are occasional shots of flowers, which are, are photographed with, with a kind of sensitivity to texture and colour that you just don't see in British cinema. They're very different. And there are these scenes of family life, you know, the heroine with her parents played by, Tilda Swinton, and an actor I've never seen before, apart from part one, uh, who may be non-professional, but they have this sort of very kind of brittle, repressed, polite, you know, sensitive but insensitive distance. They're so very much, you know, Tilda Swinton herself, you know, her her character could have walked straight out of brief encounter. It, how are you, darling? Totally sorry, darling. Is that really, You know, that one moment her daughter, who is played by Swinton's real-life daughter, Anna Swinton Byrne, breaks a piece of pottery that her mother has made at a pottery class, and it's like her first pot, and it breaks, and the parents are going, oh, never mind, don't worry, I can make another one, it's perfectly fine. But you realise from, you know, the reserve... uh, and, and the, the, the sort of brittleness of her response—that clearly, this one pot she's made is as important to her as all the films her daughter is making are to Julie. You know, and and it's incredibly resonant.
1: You sort of have to speak fluent British to fully pick up on a lot of those.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, it's very, it's very nuanced. But it's just, it, it, it is a film that sort of speaks beautifully through its reticence, which I think is something that is, you know, absolutely uh, that makes Joanna Hogg very, very kind of special in in uh, the British film landscape.
1: I remember uh, in Souvenir One, I remember seeing it and, and thinking that it was a very straight sort of kitchen sink, a realist film. And then, but there were these little moments of artificiality, the uh, projections outside of the windows of her apartment and just like the way that the apartment was sta- the scenes in the apartment were staged that uh destabilized that realism a little bit and kind of forced you to th- see the film in a different way
0: i have to say i watched the souvenir at i think sundance so many people walked out you know i mean this was 2 years ago And I've never been able to recall the film as a whole. I mean, I can recall certain scenes so vividly, like when she and her boyfriend go out to that fancy dinner and she's wearing a dress. I don't know, maybe I'm even mixing up details, but the film is just this like weird, you know, just floats in my head in these bits and pieces. I can never recall it as a narrative or or completely, but that I recognize is sort of one of its accomplishments for me. But Miriam, I know you love, the souvenir, but didn't quite warm to part two. Tell us uh, about your reaction.
2: Yes, it was really a sort of disappointment because I loved the souvenir. And those people who walked out, we showed the film and had that experience too, people not mm. really warming to it. But they're wrong. The film is so great. It's just, I thought the filmmaking was perfect. She does so much with light. And duration. And I just find her such an interesting filmmaker. And that was my first Joanna Hogg film. And afterwards, I caught up on some of her other work. And I'm a big fan. And I love what she does with the sort of British upper middle class. It's a world I know a little bit about. And she captures it with such detail. Like her interiors are just incredible. And, you know, she captures it from the inside. I saw another film at. Uh, can Mothering Sunday from a, Brit, a French director, it was very, you know, the sort of all the cliches, all the, all the sort of Downton Abbey cliches. And, and Joanna Hogg's work is really the opposite. But in The Souvenir, it was a very specific story about a woman and her sort of first love or this relationship where the film, where her boyfriend, she finds out, is um, a heroin addict. And it was so good at capturing her naivete and her sort of absence, even as a person as she's developing it. And with the charisma of this boyfriend and it worked really well. And the sort of like her lack of knowledge and with that gone, it has a different focus. This is not about that relationship. It's about making a film about that relationship. You know, it's about a woman becoming a filmmaker. And I think there's some in that last scene that Jonathan mentioned, I feel like there are some, you know, her attempt at being maybe an eight and a half or something, Um, uh, which is interesting. Um, But this, it just didn't work for me as well for a lot of reasons. The simplicity and the focus and the emotion of the first one worked so well. And this one you saw her more as a character. And this is hard to talk about because the character is so close to the director, but I found the character a little hard to take. Her privilege and her entitledness was pretty low stakes when she's, you know, she's trying to make a film and she does have to deal with her male professors and all of these, you know, and her own insecurity. But, you know, there's a scene where she asks her mother for... 10,000 pounds and you know there's not that's it's not a big struggle for her and I, I think she made this choice that made it really hard for me well you see her more she's she comes out more she's she's just very entitled with her parents all of the scenes though Tilda Swinton is so good this is maybe my favorite Tilda Swinton performance in these films and I think it's in part because Tilda Swinton also comes from this world. She went to school with Joanna Hogg, and this is the sort of real Tilda Swinton, I think, and we're seeing also a glimpse inside. So Joanna Hogg makes this decision. There's a character we saw last time, Richard, who was played by Richard Ayoade, who was just at a party before, and he was sort of a cameo, but so loved. It was this brilliant moment where he says something was just to mainstream thinking or something. I'm, I'm misquoting it. And he comes back as a um, director who's making this big film, the sort of like absolute beginners kind of musical. This like and, and reading about it, I think most of the characters in the film were based on real people. But this character was Joanna Hogg, just sort of creating putting a sort of a a compilation of all of the arrogant male directors she'd encountered, but it's this black director. Like I wish there were a black director making an absolute beginners with a huge budget in England in the 1980s. That would have changed a lot of history. It's so took me out of it in that, especially comparing her struggle with the arrogance of this person and and that character is just so great he's such a great performance his lines at one point he says he was a junkie anthony was a junkie okay and i wanted the film to just end there who is the actor
0: who plays that
2: director richard i
0: oh sorry yeah okay it's him oh i loved him in part one
1: i remember you know miriam i actually you you saying this now takes me back to, I walked out of the press screening for part one and was talking to another critic about it. And I remember talking at length and thinking, and saying like, why should we care about this rich girl and her poor experience and her experiences? I mean, this was my maybe, and this was like my gut reaction to the movie, which I also found very moving and beautiful, but I still don't feel like that, that that question has been answered. Not that we shouldn't care inherently about the experiences of all people, but like there was something really like, that great. Like this person has everything on their plate there in the, and I think in part one, she borrows like significant amount of money to give to her boyfriend who yeah. needs money to like
2: yeah. drugs. buy drugs and loses it. But I feel like there was more, there was more self-criticism about that. And, and I, I understand that. Like, I mean, but I love it. I think she's, as Jonathan said, she's, she's showing details of a world that we usually see, um, uh, cliches of, and I, I I love it. But is it and criticism?
1: I mean, like no. maybe this is picking nits, but I don't feel like there's much criticism of that world. It's, but it's-, it's
0: not glorification either, and I that's enough for me. Like I'm talking about part one, obviously I haven't yeah. seen part yeah. two. It's it's a detailed evocation of that world that's not retreating into fantastical or cliched depictions.
1: I love that not retreating into cliche depictions includes like the family walking through like a beautiful field with two like wolfhounds. <laughs>
2: oh my like, God! Have you do you know about the British and the rambles? It's yeah, a big yeah. thing.
1: That's it's what like I'm saying. Very I mean, like, huge
3: the rambles. It's, it's ex- yeah. so ex-
1: it's so extremely like it's like something out of Re- uh, Remains of the Day, you know, like
3: no, no, that you know that's the world she's from, and and you know, I mean. I can understand why we we have qualms about characters who appear to be or are entitled. And actually, you know, this is why for years I just couldn't stand to read, read Jane Austen. You know, it's like, well, why, why should I care mm-hmm. about these rich people? But actually, you know, if you look at... Um, you know, if you look at the great fiction of the 19th century and the 20th century, I mean, you know, you can have Raskolnikov, the Pendula student, but you can have Anna Karenina, you know, uh, living in the world of high society. And, and, you know, I think you have to kind of get beyond that. One of the things about here is, yes, she is uh, socially and uh, financially privileged, but at the same time, she is struggling with, you know, the way she's perceived by, by the men around her um, and the way they object to her and sort of her, her attempt to find a voice and the way they try and ride over her attempts to, 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 to speak. You know, that's, that's partly what the story is about. And the fact is, you know, you can see some of the sort of ostentatious money, like in the first part, you know, they go to the opera in Venice and she's wearing, you know, the most extravagant wall gown but um it's it's all about a, a kind of you know cavalcade of of appearances.
0: The real brittleness at the heart of it, which doesn't necessarily translate into poor little rich girl either, you know, I didn't necessarily feel sympathy. I mean, obviously, her relationship with that boyfriend is pretty awful. And I felt bad for her. But it's not that tack of, you know, oh, see, the rich have problems too. They're very sad and empty inside. It's actually that they're it, they're brittle. And um, their, wo- their world is both like weirdly dull, while also being very lavish. And it it was emotionally absorbing for me without me having to justify okay why am I paying attention to this.
2: Devika darling you're talking about the souvenir one not two.
0: I am I'm sorry.
2: Yes. So you're talking about a film that we're not discussing know, and that's like <laughs> that's and and I loved the film. Rule
1: number 1 of the film comment podcast.
2: And <laughs> I love that I love that film but this one to be precise about something Jonathan brought up mm. is that um what I think the problem is, is that it, it, it kind of, it becomes about not just a specific woman making a film, it becomes mm. about a woman filmmaker, and I'm using air quotes, and like, in that way, that's why I had a hard time with the Richard Ayawadi character, because it's like, well, he's a black filmmaker that wasn't making films like this with that budget and like it becomes a historical and I think rather than her specific struggles like when I saw losing ground it's not about a filmmaker, but to me that was like seeing my. Eight and a half, like a black woman's eight and a half it's just about her very specific struggles within the arts world and this one I think that it it becomes more generic and it, it's like less about her specific artistry because I just don't think that's enough to deal with like these men anyway I, I think that that's actually a problem even though I had problems with a souvenir too I saw another film that has some of these same problems Bergman Island mm-hmm. by a filmmaker I love even more and was also disappointed by and um, and I have to say, after seeing Bergman Island, I really appreciated the souvenir too more. Like it did get into some of the the way she made um, the her her that her production style and arriving at that and these sort of things. Well, Bergman Island is a story of two filmmakers played by Tim Roth and, and Vicky Krieps who go to Faro, where Ingmar Bergman lived and have this sort of like arguments that are really, I just found their roles very not specific. Like it became, I'm a male filmmaker. I make horror, I have lots of confidence. And the other female, the woman character was like, but can't you be a nice person? Can't you raise children too? I felt, that think they were almost cliches and they didn't get into their specific artistry very much. When when we get into Vicky is film within a film, which we see, it was more interesting for me, but I will say I really admired the film on a structural level. It sort of mixes the film within the film and the filmmakers in this really beautiful way. I would love to see a chart like Renee used to do these charts of the way his film looked. And I imagine that um, Mia Hansen love has something similar about the way this film flows, but I felt like both these films kind of fell a little bit victim into not being about a specific woman character, but about being about women filmmakers and the problem and it's not as interesting.
3: I I found Bergman Island really banal and I was very disappointed because um, I've loved several of her previous films. You know, I think she's extraordinary. I mean, when she's extraordinary, Mia Hansen love is really extraordinary. This one I d I didn't know quite what was nagging at me throughout and I found it very banal, but something about the structure of the film within the film. So they go to the island of I'm not quite sure how to pronounce furrow it, something. It's not it's not quite furrow, oh, it's furrough, I think. Um and uh they get we'll, there. We'll
1: loop that in afterwards. We'll get like we'll we'll copy
3: it.
0: We'll have an autotune.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do a deep fake voice. Um, so they arrive on the island and everyone, including some critics uh, like Gabe Klinger playing, playing himself, is standing around talking about Bergman. And all Sorry, who do,
0: playing himself? I didn't it.
3: Gabe, Gabe Klinger.
0: Okay.
3: So all they do is that, you know, they stand around on this island talking about Bergman and having conversations about, you know, whether his trilogy is really a trilogy and I kind of suddenly thought, God, this this is the most boring place in the world to be. So, so the Vicky Cripps character goes off and, and she eventually writes a story also set on the island, which is about another filmmaker, this time played by Mia Vasikovska, who comes to the island and meets an old flame. And actually, you've got these two women who both kind of get interested in these guys who came across as real sort of nebbishes, you know, really sort of insipid, the uh, Anders Danielson Lee character, who is her old flame. And then there's this sort of film student with sort of floppy Wes Anderson hair, who kind of hangs around with Vicky creeps on the beach and they and they throw um, jellyfish at each other in a really kind of, you know, gently flirtatious way. And I want to see a sign saying, no jellyfish were traumatized in the making of this film. But, you know, what worried me about it, something was nagging me and I thought, This is so close to being a Woody Allen movie, you know, a couple (laughs) go to Bergman Island and they talk about what a great filmmaker Bergman was. and, And some of the dialogue in English I just thought was was really clumsy. And I was just running it. Actually, I bored everyone for a week after in Cannes, sort of running some of this dialogue through in the voice of Woody Allen, which I, I won't... Which guess. I
1: think you have to do now.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, writing for me is is torment. It's it's like self-imposed agony, like blood from a stone, you know, and all of these lines which are really clunky. I mean, I didn't think she could, you know, she really had had the English script. But, um, you know, nevertheless, there are moments of the kind of subtlety and, you know, even, even sort of magic which can make a great Mia Hansen-Love film, and there are just sort of textural moments of atmosphere and the feeling of being on the island with those people that are like the kind of feeling of you had to be there that made Eden, her film about the, uh, the French techno scene, that made that film so special. So there are glimpses of that very particular kind of frequency that is, you know pure mere handsome love, but I didn't get it as a whole film.
2: I'm so glad you said the Woody Allen thing because there, and I'm so glad you did your impression. And I want to be clear. I think you mean like a minor Woody Allen, not a great yeah. Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but there was even one scene where I think they used a kind of jazz cue when they're on a bookshelf. And I'm like, this is exactly Woody Allen. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But and there's again. a bit
3: at the end where she actually gets to go into um, Bergman's uh, meditation room and it's just a little bit in awe of the whole film I mean at a couple of points it tries to sort of undermine or ironize the myth you know that like Tim Roth goes on a Bergman safari which you can actually do on this island but it is sort of it's it's kind of a theme park movie it's about people who go to you know the theme park of of, you know, grand European cinema. But it really made me feel like I didn't want to ever go there and ever meet any of those people. You know, if I go away somewhere, you know, to the middle of the North Sea or wherever, I don't want to spend two weeks talking only about Ingmar Bergman.
1: Much like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah.
0: Well, I have to say the idea of a Woody Allen movie being made by Mia Hansen Love, like a female auteur like that, does sound appealing, but what you've described doesn't sound like it really hit that.
1: I also think that Vicky Creeps is a great punk singer name.
3: Yeah, it is. Actually, she's, she's not so great, unfortunately. I mean, I thought she was really mannered in this film, and she also was in uh, the film by Mathieu Maleric, and, you know, mm-hmm. she was so great in Phantom Thread, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really kind of measure up. It's a shame.
1: So there's another film that we wanted to talk about, Drive My Car, by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, also sort of a, a romance of sorts. Did you catch this one?
0: I know Miriam loves it. Jonathan, I I don't know if I caught your uh, response.
3: I absolutely love it. I was Great. betting on it being the palm door. I mean, I think in a way it deserves... Be-
1: he won for a screenplay, right?
3: Yeah, and and you know it would have been the perfect Palm Door measured by the traditional standard of you know traditionally the Palm d'Or is the big serious, possibly humanist drama that makes a statement about the modern world and possibly makes a statement about the state of cinema and moves you and blah blah. blah. But you know in the same way that uh, Tony Edmonds would have been the ideal Palm Door, and in fact they went for a film which completely kind of blew the Palm d'Or categories apart titan and i was very excited to see that film win and it represented something like blowing away the cobwebs the same way that pulp fiction did when it won in the year that kishlovsky was expected to win with three colors red um and i i think i don't think titan is a great film but it's certainly you know a kind of turbocharged crazy experience and Fantastic to see Julia Ducourneau win because I think, you know, she is a really, you know, authentically weird talent and, you know, we need more extremists in cinema. However, Hamaguchi has made two great films this year, Uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which was in Berlin, which is three, uh, let's say, somewhat Roma-esque stories and this one, so what it is for me is certain films, you know, you see and they have the, the satisfaction and the completeness and the substance of a really good, complex, grown-up novel. And very few people make those kind of films now. Nuri Bilka Jalan tries to, but he so obviously wants to be a novelist as well as a filmmaker that... They're very hard to accept as films. The person who pulls it off, I think, time and time again, is Lee Chang-dong. And and this felt like Lee chang Dong film. His last film was based on Haruki Murakami's story, *Burning*, and this film is also based on Murakami. And I love this. So so basically, there's about a forty-minute build-up which follows two characters, and then suddenly the opening credits, and then you switch to another story entirely involving one of these characters, but completely informed by what you've learnt in the prelude. And the main body of the film is about this actor who is kind of haunted by tragedy, who goes to direct a sort of workshop production of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya which sort of works itself into the drama and and emerges at the end of the drama in a way that's... I just felt the way that Hamaguchi kind of weaves these threads all the way through, and little details you may have missed earlier suddenly come back, like one of the characters has an argument with someone, and then later in the film that kind of comes back, you know, the uh, chickens come home to roost. And it's just done with a kind of, I think there's a real sort of depth and an intellectual rigor and a kind of human depth to this film that I just found totally, it's it's just perfect, you know.
2: Yeah, I loved it. It was um, absolutely, I thought, kind of flawless. And um, I think it's over three hours or about three hours. I think it's exactly three hours. Okay. But it didn't, it felt like exactly the right length. And I haven't seen Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy yet, um, his other film this year, but I did love Asako one and two. And that was one of my favorite can films when uh, his previous film played. And it does have a sort of similar character where there's this almost like I I mean, almost kind of himbo-esque, kind of like, uh, you know, like just attractive kind of, you know, teen beat, just heartthrob. And in the Isako 1 and 2, it's you're unsure if this character is real or not real. It becomes very, he's very good at this sort of weaving the very surreal with the very grounded. And in this film, it becomes more grounded. And in fact, that's what it becomes about, about like about kind of accepting these sort of strange realities and not questioning them. And there's a great um, interaction about that. And I love that. To me, that's always the sort of like vertigo-esque line of the sort of like metaphysical to the very grounded. And you're kind of easing in from one to the other, but that It's staying very real. Yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. I I wish it had won the poem. Although Titan is exactly, you know, it's uh, Jonathan's right that it's, a great burn it all down burn it down all the prestige molotov cocktail yes absolutely yeah. and and as we talked about in the last episode everything that we could complain about it it's one of those can films is actually you could come to appreciate as as you said Devika, everything that we said negative about it made you want to see it more and it's exactly that kind of film i think it's great
3: there are some filmmakers that you worry that getting an award as kind of institutionalized as the Palme d'Or could make them become... If, say, Gaspar Noé had won the Palme d'Or, I think it would have destroyed his cinema. And, you know, I'd have to say worries about Julia Dukovna. Interestingly, I don't know if we're going to talk about this, but Gaspar Noé's film Vortex.
1: Let's talk about that now, actually. Okay.
3: I'd love to.
0: Um, I just wanted to say one thing about the Hamaguchi. I just want to say, Miriam, your vertigo... Comparison is so great. And I didn't think about that. I also loved the film. And I think it's great because even though, like Jonathan, you were saying, it sort of reminds me of Lee Chang Dong. You know, there is this um, novelistic aspect to it. it. It also is like a great follow up to Wheel of Fortune and fantasy and has that sort of Romaresque aspect to it. But I was t- surprised by like how also melodramatic it is. I don't mean in the sense that the emotions are big and sentimental. But there is like there are moments of tragedy. there are twists, you know, it has a plot that can almost feel like is soapy at times. And I think that's what for me, sets Hamaguchi. Apart from, say, you know, someone like Kong Sung Soo, uh, you know, there are, I think, some similar aspects between their filmmaking, especially Wheel of Fortune and Fantasies, really these like three little serendipitous uh, encounters um, and the stories mostly unfold in, you know, interactions between people. This one leans into narrative. But also has these transcendent moments like that conversation you were uh, referencing, Miriam, between the older and the younger actor, uh, the opening scene where there's a character just silhouetted against, uh, you know, a dark window narrating the story because the film is so much about storytelling and entering and exiting stories, and the sort of multilingual production of Uncle Vanya that they put up and how the characters all sort of meet across these chasms of language. So yeah, I just wanted to say like, that's, that's what sort of really impressed me about the film that it sort of almost felt like it could be a TV show or something, but a really smart, uh, cerebral and emotionally rich one.
1: Like, like up there with Mad Men. I'm just kidding. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish there were TV shows like this. Another film in competition reminded me of a TV show in a bad way. And I sort of want to talk about it, but I know we're going to talk about Vortex. Oh, I'll well, just say, oh, let's it. say it. Let's do it. I'll just let's say it. I'm it. trying to guess what the, it
3: is. Was it Nanny Moretti?
1: Was it, was it a hero?
2: No, the worst person <laughs> in the world.
0: I thought you were going to say a hero, but that's not really
2: TV-like. It's soapy, though. <laughs> no. I disliked that though. Yeah, that was yeah. like overly schematic. But the worst person in the world, which everyone I know there yeah, loved, people have been
1: raving about it.
2: I, I thought it was like bad TV. It was like episodic, slightly shaky cam, like all of these cliches from romantic comedies. I strongly disliked it. Did you like it, Jonathan? I didn't
3: see it, but people seem to. People, everyone's telling me how great it was. You love it. Everybody loves it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well now we have now i know what to think when i when when i walk out there it's like bad tv
2: i thought it was like bad tv it was very but it's also in 12 chapters so the episodic kind of lends it
0: so do you think we'll be seeing vortex on tv anytime soon
3: no i don't
1: (laughs) what's can you guys can somebody describe vortex Okay, well,
3: you know, Vortex, I thought, I saw an announcement, it's got Dario Argento in it, and it's by Gaspar Noé, it's called Vortex, and the tagline was, life is a short party which will soon be forgotten, I thought, oh God, here we go again, and I kind of got tired of Gaspar Noé, you know, over the years, although I liked Climax, um, his dance film, but The idea of Gaspar Noé was kind of wearing off on me, and I think some of his films are just, you know, horrible beyond belief. And Into the Void was like, a large part of that was like a very, very extravagant screensaver. So I thought, okay, Vortex, you know, why am I not surprised he's made a film called Vortex? In fact, it's very, very serious. You know, it's his first really serious uh, film, I think, since his very first one. I Stand Alone, which is, is kind of overlooked for its political content and, you know, considered, you know, but that's a film that sort of made him a sort of tricksy um, shock jock. Um, but this is a film about death and it's a film about old age and dementia. And it's basically about two old people, an old couple who live together in Paris. And in the first shot, we see them having breakfast together in this kind of, Edenic you know on this rooftop and they say ah oh, you know life is life is a dream and then um they're lying next to each other in bed and suddenly this sort of black line sort of drips down the middle of the screen and divides the image in two and it's like the drip of death because basically it kind of divides them and suddenly each one is in their own frame and essentially no longer able to communicate with the other and each one is trapped in their own world. So uh, the woman who's played by Francoise Lebrun, um, who is in uh, Jean Estache's film, The Mother in the Whore, um, is entering an advanced state of dementia and goes wandering around the flat. And then she goes out and wanders around the shop and he doesn't know, uh, her husband, Dario Argento, doesn't know where she is. Uh, and goes looking for her, and, you know, he's clearly in a very fragile state as well, which is actually played up brilliantly by the fact that Argento's French is very Italian-accented, so you get a sense of sort of the difficulty of him, you know, speaking, you know, it's not sort of 100% fluent French, and she is silent for most of the time, they also have a son, an adult son, who's kind of trying to help them out, and is very solicitous, but he has problems in his life, and he's got a young son to look after, and he has a drug habit as well, uh, which slightly, for me, kind of made it a bit generically, you know, Gaspar Noé. I thought, you know, he couldn't just be a suburban dentist, you know, he had to be, you know, he had to have a drug problem and be part of, you know, no a
1: Junkie dentist,
3: yeah. Nightlife, yeah. So that kind of, that that felt a bit sort of, you know, gratuitous or a bit of a kind of, you know, outer branding touch. Um, but the fact that a lot of the film is just the two of them kind of wandering around... Um, And, you know, making phone calls or scribbling notes or just throwing things away or doing things in the kitchen or or just wandering around this extraordinary apartment, which is a labyrinth that kind of becomes a metaphor for their their minds and their memory. Because it's full of kind of the clutter of, you know, film history, posters, 60s radicalism. Um, And it's a brilliant set. And Benoit Duby, who who is Noah's usual uh, DOP, um, pulls off this extraordinary choreography in having the two images which sometimes connect, sometimes shoot off in different directions. And, you know, as with all Noah films, it's kind of built around this, effectively, uh, a formal gimmick, but it works absolutely brilliantly. And, you know, this is the first film in ages that made me think, well, a he's he's kind of really mature here. You, you know, you don't necessarily being being a mature filmmaker doesn't necessarily make you a better one, but he's also using form absolutely brilliantly. And I think there's a real kind of profundity. I mean, it, in some ways, you know, it's it's got a touch of of Chantal Ackerman even, um, and it kind of captures a sort of mood of seventies um, experimentalism. I I just found it really daring and let's say you know it really is one film that that kind of dares to look into the abyss and when he's done it before it's kind of i guess it's a sort of imaginary theme park abyss you know it didn't feel particularly real to me but this time you know it's about old age and death and what it feels like um you know as he says at the beginning this is for all those people whose brains decompose before their hearts do and you know you just come out thinking You know, it's not, there are no consolations in this film at all.
2: Yeah, I think it was instigated by Gaspar Noé having a brain hemorrhage a a year or two ago. But I actually really liked that that character was a junkie. And something that we do in it, um, or was a former drug addict, um, I felt like it made it more personal in a way. uh, And it really became about something specific, not just about death, but it was about... I think there's a line in there. If you don't die by a drug overdose, this is the way you die long and slow and horribly. And that's interesting. And the way he shows it is interesting, even though, you know, I think there are comparisons to Amor and these sort of things, but it, 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 um, you still see the sort of ugliness and grossness that he can get in films. Like you hear illness, you hear there's like a a heart problem and you don't see it normally with these jump cuts, like like a heart attack and someone clutches their chest and then they're on the floor. Instead, you hear all these sounds and there's about the horror of things like a clogged toilet, like what could be worse than a clogged toilet? And someone compared it to, realism but it goes so far beyond realism it's like real time it really kind of rewired my brain a little bit about my expectations of what was coming next and it's really the only film that I thought formally did something really new and different and I always judge a film by the way I experience it after I walk out and how I see the world and if that alters it slightly and this did it changed the way I heard things and the way I saw things, I thought it was really impressive and unexpected. And and again, going back to the the character of the son, it was also to me about like really about Gen X in this way. Like he puts everyone's birth date. So you're aware that both he, 1963, I think, and the character who plays the son, is very Gen X.
1: I was going to ask because Jonathan was talking about the like the posters on the wall and the 68 revolutionaries. Oh no, stuff, that's you know? the
2: family. I mean, that's the the older couple. That's all claustrophobic. But the uh-huh. the the drug addict's son is dealing with his own problems. And when I walked out of the, uh, soon after the film, Biz Marquis, I found news that he died. And this year we've heard so many stories of Gen X musicians dying in their 50s really quite a lot this year and there's something very tragic about these gen x figures dying before these you know boomers and older before david crosby right yeah and (sighs) like and this was really in a way was you know again i like the the comparison between you know okay so if you don't die of a drug overdose in this dramatic way this is the alternative
3: i also thought francois lebrun gave you know one of the absolutely great performances in the festival and you know, she has clearly studied and watched Alzheimer's very closely because, um, you know, I mean, I have seen that confusion and that sense of being lost in the sense of, you know, someone who has lived to uh, a certain age sort of reverting to a certain sort of childhood, but a kind of disabled childhood in a way. And, you know, what really kind of plays this up, gives it gives this, this, this heightened effect is, you know, partly the decor, because you know how intellectually involved this woman has been in, in 60s, 70s feminism and politics. And also, you know, she has been a psychiatrist. And one of the kind of painful aspects of the film is she's still able to prescribe medicines. Uh, for her husband and presumably herself and this is you know at one point you see her doing something with these you know crushing up these pills and you just feel very very anxious and um, if you have ever seen if you've ever been around people with dementia who do things with medicines that they should not do it's terrifying
2: yeah, I think you're, this film was not in competition, but you're absolutely right. If it had been, I think she her performance should have been rewarded. And the film. I think this was the last film screened. And this, I feel like, made my Cannes experience complete. I needed that one film to kind of rewire my brain. And this was it.
1: Great. Well, that's like a perfect place for us to kind of wrap up our... Our conversation about the festival.
2: Yeah. A
0: glowing recommendation for the new Gaspar Noé film. I think that's... Glowing recommendation of a very
3: dark (laughs) film. And a real film. You know, it's his first piece of realism in a way.
2: Not a gimmick. Using um, formal devices in this really whole new way.
1: Well, I can't wait to see it. There's a lot of stuff that we left on the table. I know that we wanted to talk about Nitrim Petrov's flu, the Sugua Diaries. There were a lot of interesting films this year.
0: I do think there will be other opportunities to talk about those. films. I think films, there will you know? be. Yes, something tells me. Fall Fest season has just begun,
3: <laughs> and now we have to move ahead because Venice will come around and we'll be talking about its opening film, which is New Almodovar. And you know, it's like these things are seasonal.
2: Terence Davies yeah. at a TIFF. Oof,
1: don't get me started.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be back. Nice to have films back. i One of the best experiences I had was seeing *Lovers Rock* at Cannes on the beach, mm. and I realized I hadn't seen it with an audience and oh. watching people just like rock and sway and sing That's along. That's
0: giving crap. me real fomo Wow, that sounds amazing. This is great. <laughs> I but saw it in my living room during NYFF.
1: <laughs> me too. I would love to too. do like an installation of that film on like four walls and have it and just have it be a dance party. Yeah, I think that would be. I'd
2: yeah. be there. Yeah,
3: yeah that'd I'd be fun. there.
1: All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. It's been a Signing off.
3: Bye.
2: Thank you so much. Bye.
1: The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.